Welcome back to the Replatform Podcast. Uh, I'm James Gerd and I'm your host today. Paul is not here. His glamorous lifestyle has taken him to Paris. If you are a subscriber, thanks again for tuning in. If you haven't, please do. It really helps us. And if you do, um, if you do like this episode and the content in it, please give us a rating on Apple, Spotify, or YouTube, wherever you're listening and watching. Right, that's the shameless promotion over. Let's get into today's topic, which is building a global marketplace for vintage fashion and jewellery. It's fair to say that e-commerce growth has been pretty epic since 2019. Uh, McKinsey stated that the US had um, 10 years of growth in just 30 days, which is crazy. And there are two sub-trends that we're covering on today's episode, marketplace commerce and luxury shopping, both fast growth areas. Limworks research found that nine out of 10 shoppers regularly start products such as marketplaces. Figures from Miracle show marketplaces grew 80% in the final quarter of 2020, which is twice the growth rate of other e-commerce channels. So that's the growth stats, and this is why today's such an important episode. And we're going to chew the fat on luxury commerce marketplace scene with the CEO of Open for Vintage, Colin Saunders, who I work with uh, back in our glorious House of Fraser days. So welcome to the podcast, Colin. How are you doing? I'm well done, thank you. And yes, they were glorious. I'm, there was a, a, a wonderful time. So yeah, it's great, great to see you again. Hope all is well. Yeah, it is, and I'm loving the the uh, the evolution of Open for Vintage. So, before we start asking uh, annoying questions, um, do you want to let, let give people a flavour for, for who you are, what you do, and what what is Open for Vintage? Sure, of course. Thank thank you very much, and thank you for having me on the uh, on the podcast today. Um, o- Open for Vintage is on a mission to accelerate the move to a sustainable fashion future. That's our mission. That's why we exist and of course there are many many ways across fashion of people endeavoring to do this but what open for vintage do is we connect our customers with the best pre-owned luxury jewelry watches handbag in the market on our marketplace we sell exclusively from businesses we're not a peer-to-peer player So what we do is we go out in the world and we find fantastic businesses globally and we bring all their product together and serve it to you on our marketplace. Amazing. Um, so yeah, thanks for that, that that introduction. It's interesting. The sustainability angle was such a focus area for fashion in general. And you're right, there's, there's lots of innovative brands out there. So um, we're going to touch on that and other themes in today's episode. So let's start with a, a key question. Uh, you, you know, you're you're the drive force behind this business, along with with um, you know the um, other people who are in the founding team. But why vintage marketplace? Marketplace commerce is challenging because you don't own the product, you don't own the full journey. So what brought you to that model? What made you think there was a need? Thank you. Yeah, and I appreciate you calling out the challenges. It, 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 it is far from straightforward. And as you say, marketplaces are tough. Add into it that everything that we sell is pre-owned. Everything we sell is single item inventory. Add into it that our boutique partners are located globally. Our customers are located globally. And you've got yourself a... A, a pretty interesting use case that you uh, you need to solve. But back to your question of, about starting with why. why. Why are we doing this? Why do we exist? You, you highlighted a few uh, st- statistics earlier on around kind of the growth of marketplace, the growth of e-commerce. And actually, I think around the time when uh, we were working together, um, started watching amazing businesses like Farfetch emerge and loved this idea of bringing independent businesses together onto a single platform. And in addition to that, at the same time, what we started seeing was the emergence of the wider topic of sustainability. Consumers were starting to question, where is this 
product made? How can I be more environmental? Um, and what we started seeing was that this was just becoming a bigger and bigger topic. And I just started asking the question, is there a pre-owned Farfetch? Is there anybody else out there who's bringing these wonderful boutiques that we come across all together onto a single platform? And in going through that, there was a few things we learned along the way. We learned that pre-owned luxury is growing four times faster than the new luxury market. So this was taking the point that luxury is growing, marketplace are growing, e-commerce is growing, but the segment that was really growing quickly was the pre-owned space. So that gave us confidence that this is a space that we really should deep dive into. And then secondly, was looking at the incumbents in the market. They served as a fantastic example for just how big things were, were getting in pre-owned. When you look at some of our, our, our very, very capable and fantastic, fantastic competitors out there, such as the Bestiaire Collective or the Real Real in America, they are peer-to-peer -peer players. They're bringing together people who are, who are looking to extend the life of their merchandise by selling it onto a platform, and then somebody else comes and buys it. So you had this wonderful use case that you could see out there, but that's quite intensive. It's quite capital intensive when it has to go to a warehouse, be authenticated, come back out again, more fulfillment, lots of cost. And we just started asking, can, can we do it differently? Can we apply technology to this problem? And when we felt the confidence that, yes, we could, that then said to us, number one, great market opportunity. Number two, we think we can do it differently and better. And most importantly, we think we can give our customers a fantastic experience and access to the best product in the market. And that's what we endeavor to do. Excellent. That's a really nice kind of um, story about thinking from the customer perspective as well, what you can do differently and how you can add value to that. Um, what what is the current size of it? I, mean, what, I know you can't disclose all your uh, all your uh, secrets. Give it, give it, give us an idea, like you know, number of customers or sellers, um, you know, number of transactions, and and you know, growth rates that you're currently seeing in the market. Sure. So, I think it's very important to highlight. In we we've taken a, an approach to open for vintage of saying, okay, as a marketplace, we've got three big pillars that need to exist in order for our mission to accelerate this movement to a sustainable fashion future, to hold that up, we've got to attack three big pillars. So number one is supply. We've got to consolidate the best supply in the market in order to be competitive and in order to really engage our customers. So in order to bring that supply together, you've got to do an awful lot of work on platform and as of today, our platform has consolidated more than 50 million pounds of merchandise live on, live on site today, coming from boutiques across 14 different markets. So that's, that's far from straightforward. A lot of work in the first few years of Open for Vintage needed to go into automation solutions, machine learning. Um, and the team have done, I think, a wonderful job of using tech as an enabler in order to bring the best product together. We talk about the biggest challenge and the biggest opportunity we see in pre-owned luxury is creating a seamless experience for both our sellers and our buyers. So I talk about the seamless experience for our sellers. 
as of today, our solution enables us to bring on board all of their merchandise onto our platform, regardless of what platform they have, or if they have no platform at all, we bring all of that merchandise together. We then populate it into the right categories, be it jewelry, watches, handbags. So if I give you a, a, a great example, a Chanel 255 black shoulder bag, that's two and a half thousand pounds. We will pick up that it's Chanel, that it's a handbag, it's a shoulder bag, we'll put it in the right subcategory. We will then say brand equals Chanel, two and a half thousand pounds, and it'll populate it right down to the right category. That's all done using automation. So we don't have large teams handling that. And we also don't expect our sellers to do it manually. We're fully integrated with DHL. So all fulfillment, be it inbound and outbound, is all handled by them. So whenever we work with a new partner, we immediately try and, um, and, and say to them, you don't need to do anything except package the item in the box and send it to the customer when it comes through. That To create that when you don't own the product, when that product is in a boutique somewhere around the world, was tough to do. But the great news is it's working fantastically well now. So that addresses, I think, pillar one of supply and pillar two of the platform. And now we come to pillar three, which is the bit that we're really excited about now. Our customers are across more than 60 markets. Um, our average order value is, is lovely and high because of the product focus that we have. It's, in, it's north of 600 pounds, which is fantastic. And it highlights that customers are increasingly happy to come and shop with us, that they're willing to transact with us on high order values. We, we recently had a, a customer discover a Cartier necklace that their mother previously owned that they'd been hunting for years. This was a very, very rare piece. And, and through our platform, transacted a £24,000 necklace. Wow. Extraordinary. So I don't have any clients in my family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you've got plenty in your wardrobe, don't um, uh, So of interest, you said the high average order value makes perfect sense because of the, the nature of the product. But is that, is that average basket size of one item or do you get an average basket size of multiple items? It's a good question. It, it's it's we, we are seeing more and more as customers are interacting with us that it frequently starts with a single item, but then you have people who are fascinated by because our, our inventory is incredibly unique. So you see people coming back and shopping for two or three items. It's very, it's very interesting from our perspective that what we're seeing is more and more is the lifetime value and repeat customer rate is going up all of the time. Of course, it would naturally, but what you're seeing is quite, quite large jumps and that the, the number of items in the basket is also increasing with that. I think one of the key reasons for that happening comes back to the point that I was making about creating a seamless experience on the platform. And on the customer side, Open for Vintage has done something which I, I personally think is the secret sauce to our business and it's gonna be the big enabler for Open for Vintage to grow internationally and achieve our mission is we've cracked the customs conundrum in the pre-owned space. So if I give you a bit of color on that, when you're selling from 14 markets and your customers are in 63 markets, you have a real challenge that, that items are going cross-border. And last year, we started to really activate our customer acquisition activity and what was very encouraging was we, we started seeing it working. We saw sales going up, revenue going up, fantastic. 
But then what wasn't so fantastic was the reviews and customers were complaining and rightly so. They're saying, I've, I've just bought a 2000 pound Chanel handbag and I've just gotten a customs bill for 500 pounds and we were getting slated. So we took a step back and we said, okay, let's park the acquisition for now, which is, is a tough moment when you're like, you, you're excited. You want to go, you want to grow. Oh, and, holes, exactly. When you, when you've got big growth plans. Yeah. Time. When you're, you're, you're dying to really crack on, but you, I mean, what's the right thing to do here? Ultimately, we have a mission. We want to bring people into this. We want people to feel good about buying pre-owned. We want to create a really fascinating and seamless customer experience. So what we then went and did was we, we paused, painful as it was, and we effectively calculated what the customs was for pre-owned into all of the countries we sold to from all the countries we sold from. And we developed a, a customs pricing engine, uh, which it means, uh, when I distill it down for what it means, is it means for all of our customers in all of our markets, what you see is what you pay. So the price you see on that website, regardless of whether in the, the UK or Australia United States, Japan, or any of our markets that we sell to, is that is your price in your local currency. Um, and that was that was a tough challenge. That took us a year, and, and a lot of credit has to go out for, for a variety of different partners. We had contacts who were previously a Farfetch gave us guidance. We had um, a lot of help from DHL. Um, our, our own technology partners at Syrian were fantastic, as, as were Intelligent Reach, who we we previously worked with before, who worked with us on data. So this was a very large collaborative effort resolving a very, very difficult issue, which we have not seen in the market any of our uh, of our competitors or our, our cohorts that we would benchmark against have, have resolved it. So many of them you get to their checkout and then you get the customs added. That's not a great experience, we feel. So we're excited that we can now really grow with this big barrier to scale out of the way. A question on that. Uh, what made you go down the custom route rather than using like a, a third-party tool like Avalara, which a lot of businesses seem to, te- to to go towards because it enables them to have a lot of, of that global reach for, for taxes and duties, especially in markets like the US where it's just at state level and really yeah, it's great. One of the one of the businesses in this space I I, I admire um, greatly is Global E, and I think they've yeah. done an extraordinary job. Um, I think Amir and the team there have done wonderfully, and of course they IPO this year. the the cha- The challenge we face is um, none of our merchandise is is in a central warehouse, so being able to get the merchandise, applying it from a central location, and then shipping it out, it, it's 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 very difficult for these platforms to to enable what we do in in the same way when we look at fantastic solutions in the market around kind of bringing the product together quickly and we look at things like miracle for example which are fantastic enablers for marketplaces to get to market quickly they can't offer what we've ultimately had to take the pain on in, in order to create um i think before we we started recording this we just talked about some of the the real challenges and the use case for what we do. Everything is is single product. Everything is around the world in in different boutiques. Everything is priced differently on different platforms. 
you, you, there is very, it's very, very challenging to consolidate that. So those were the big challenges that we faced into. But our feeling on it was, and the reason why we got such strength, strength of conviction, was that by tackling those issues up front, what you do is you bring to the customer the very best merchandise in the market, and you do it in a way that actually is scalable. But once you have it in place and the platform is running, you don't need to bring everything into a single um, warehouse to be authenticated. You're connecting with the best authenticators in the market. We work with the largest pre-owned seller in the Middle East, a fantastic product. We work with a number of wonderful sellers in the UK, including some who are specialists in Hermes, Birkins and Chanel. We work at platforms much, much larger than us. And then we work with smaller mom and pop stores who have just beautiful, beautiful merchandise, but we have a very manual solution for them to upload because they have no e-com. So our feeling is we want to bring the best to our customers, but that needs to come from tech. Yeah, so let's talk a bit about the, the, the platform there. So you, you built it on um, NOP Commerce. I don't know whether it's called NOP or NOP Commerce. I'm call we, it NOP. We, we, we call it NOP. I, la- I laugh about NOP Commerce quite a lot. and I, I, We have a, a fantastic technology partner who are based close to Burnley named Syrian. And I remember when we were sizing this uh, this business at first and we were looking at Magento, we were looking at a variety of different solutions. And I remember um, sitting down with uh, Justin Sherwood, who runs Syrian, we were desc- we were trying to describe what, what it was we were looking to do. And I, and I almost had a Morpheus moment with, uh, with Justin where it was like the blue pill, the red pill, and like, one being magento and very familiar and we can do yeah. so, or we or we'll go the other route we'll go we'll go not commerce and, and i think like a lot of uh people particularly on the on the business side of the product owner side i hadn't come across not before but what justin explained to me he said look you're you're getting going you need a robust um e-commerce platform and the great thing with not is that it's asp.net Backed, so it has a lot of backing out of Microsoft, um, and very critically, it has significant marketplace functionality out of the box. When we when we were starting this business, of course, like like most startups, we were our resources were rather limited. But what we recognize, and I still endeavor to do this today, although I don't always succeed, is as the kind of the the product owner, I should articulate what what we're looking to achieve i shouldn't be on i shouldn't solutionize leave that leave that to the developers and uh, i don't always get it right but we we endeavor to say this is what we're looking to achieve and if the developers are saying this is how we would recommend doing it i i yield to their expertise and it was very clear from engaging with justin and learning about not at the time that that this was going to get us very far because we're we're microsoft asp house we're, we're on Azure. It's been very scalable. And what we've learned as we've gone on is that the platform has has stood up to the test. And I think it's validated a lot of what, um, what, what Justin had originally articulated to us that it was going to be capable of doing. So as I was saying, I mean, we're now at a point where we, we believe we now have one of the largest selections of pre-owned luxury merchandise of any platform online. So we, we've raised relatively small amounts of capital versus our competitors, but our range is, is, is in comparison to them, pr- pr- pretty competitive. 
Um, so roughly how many thousand? Because I know you talked about fifty million um, uh, pounds worth of merchandise. But you, 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 you've over forty-five thousand unique SKUs right now. And then not only not only that, you have um, you have sixty-three unique prices for each one of them uh, because of all the different markets we're we're selling into. So and then you've got six and then you've got sixty-three localized websites. Well, that's a lot of data to crunch. Um, we synchronize with our boutique partners four times a day. So you have a lot of data in and then a lot of data out. So whenever product from their platforms is sold, comes off ours. Whenever a product is added onto theirs, it then goes through into our platform. And we and we integrate effectively through through a variety of means, your your usual your old school data scraping into API into um product feeds directly from our, our merchant partners into a manual product upload solution that we have for the most for the for the most, I suppose, like mom and pop type profile type of stores that we would work with. But even for those uh profile stores, we have a solution where we're integrated with a, a image post-production house who will take the raw photographs taken with a, uh, an iPhone in, in the stores and it fry an API goes off to their service, comes back the next day on white background. So the result of that is across our platform, the lead image is white, which I think when you're browsing through our stock, it, it gives the customer the experience that they're, that everything is coming from a single source. And that's very important for us is to get that, that premium yeah. experience. What, one of the biggest challenges with, with people doing, uh, I guess, dropship in general, whether it's marketplace or, or um, uh, yeah, non-marketplace commerce, is quality control how yeah. how how do you do so how do you pre-screen new potential partners to know that they will not screw up your marketplace with crap data basically because it is a big risk when you've got that many suppliers it's a very very good question um we're very very selective about our suppliers um we take a view that this land there is in many ways a land grab in terms of bringing the best consolidating as much of the best supply in in the market together but we we don't feel that that should that kind of race to supply should be at the expense of the supply being high quality we learned this the hard way by the way i i, I would highlight when, when open for vintage started we featured um a clothing category we did a lot of let's call it um, genuine vintage product, like what you would maybe associate in like 30s and 40s dresses, flapper dresses, et cetera. And what we realized was couldn't get sizing right, couldn't get quality control right. Like what is a 1940s small in Yves Saint Laurent versus a 1980s Gucci small? It They have no correlation whatsoever. So to try and create a um, that seamless customer experience with that type of merchandise it was just not happening. So ultimately, we made the the difficult decision to remove the clothing category from from the platform. Now we focus on handbags, jewelry, watches, where you can achieve greater consistency, a better experience. Um, so what do we do? We on the boutiques. We do a full boutique audit in advance of any boutique listing. We are a closed marketplace. You can't just pitch up and start selling on Open for Vintage. So we would do everything. We do boutique interviews. We do questionnaires around authenticity process. We figure out how long they've been in business, their history, what they're specializing in, which brands they look at. We examine their own platforms. We figure out what their technical capabilities are. We do a lot of social media listening. We check review sites. And then we do a paperwork DD as well around just making sure that they are very legit. And in many cases, 
And then, sorry, I should rephrase that. In as many cases as possible, we will visit them and we will actually visit their stores. I'll give you a, a, a quick anecdote. We, we have a number of great boutique partners in Tokyo. Um, and the great thing is um, for the Japanese sellers, they actually, you need a license in Japan to sell secondhand luxury, which again, really helps to give us a, a level of confidence in the quality of the supply. But as it happens, one of one of our investors is Tokyo-based, and we were able to uh, through him to to do conduct boutique interviews in Japanese, um, do a real deep dive on their expertise, visited all of their stores, their warehouses, and and that gave us the confidence. Yeah, this is a great seller. So we're that that's an example of the lens that we will go to to ensure yes. that the the product is 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 kosher, is authenticated, is fantastic, and and as a result, so we're a few years into Revenge now. We have yet to have a return touch wood that due to an authenticity concern. So we have returns, people don't like it, sizing, etc. But we have yet to have one people saying I, I'm questioning that 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 that's yeah, and that's critical to your reputation, isn't it? Um, because once once reputation of authenticity goes, it is quite hard to, 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 to manage that back. But that's that's interesting. So that's 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 nice that you've got a really robust process now, and obviously that has taken time to build up on select yeah. boutique partners. What about the quality listings? Because you said you've got different ways, automated or manual for uploading. It, are all listings manually curated after submitted, or is there an automation process where listings automatically go live without the team at Open for Vintage doing any editing? I, I remember in our first year of uh, starting this business up, um, bringing on a team of curators who were manually putting the listing. I remember sitting in the office and I was, uh, we had numbers on the on the whiteboard, kind of that that was the North Star at the time. How quickly could we get the product on? And I remember just sitting there going, this ain't gonna fly. We're never going to consolidate and achieve a level that would be competitive and compelling. Um, and that would really connect with our customers. So again, a little bit like the customs, there was a moment of like, we 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 got it, we've got to crack this. And that has that required us developing the automation solution that underpins Open for Vintage today. Um, everything, all of our merchandise goes through a machine learning solution where we'll take the product from whatever um, platform uh, the boutique is on. It then goes through a, a data cleanse where we'll extract the brands we want, we'll extract what's the right filters, what's the right categories, um, and then that gets applied onto the website. Um, in terms of how the descriptions are, there's then we're actually going through it at the moment where we're applying rules on if you see a full stop, put a space in between, tidying it up, ensuring that the customer can read the data properly. And that gets you, that gets you pretty far. You, I mean, that enables us to get to about, I suppose, about 80% of confidence that what we're getting is very good but we have eyes on the website all the time we're continually refining uh, the rules-based engine that this goes through and then we're also and this has been one of the parts that i've been really enjoying watching the team get stuck into is working with the boutiques on on, on best practices so it's the the usual adage on this stuff. It's crap in, it's crap out. So if you're if you're not working with the boutiques to improve their listings, you're gonna face a really big uphill battle. So we spend a lot of time 
educating our partners on this is how description should be written. This is how you should be writing for SEO. This is how you should be. These are the things that are important to a customer. Let's get away from large paragraphs of text and just let's get straight into the points that are really relevant for the customer. And that, of course, then helps open for vintage because we're then getting better descriptions. It's less effort for us. Um, We've also, over the last year as well, we've integrated a, gr a great uh, search and merch uh, tool called Algolia, which has been really, really helpful. And then there's some machine learning in there as well, which which has also helped with it. But it's, uh, it's, in many ways, it is the business as usual, constant challenge and opportunity that we face that we're constantly refining and tweaking this. And uh, it's from from where we were to where we are now. I think it's it's come on leaps and bounds, but there's there's always more to do on it. And of interest, because you you talked about you know using automation to to help extract um, you know actually data and help to auto classify, which makes perfect sense at scale. Do you use any any AI tools for things like um, auto writing product titles, descriptions, or improving content that you've got from from your boutiques to then get onto the site? Or is that just not required? So there, I think there is there is an opportunity as we go forward to integrate more of those solutions. Um, as of now, there is a, the machine learning part takes care of a lot of it, but the actual auto writing part we have we haven't yet to go down that road. And I think the the reason for that is because we're we're working with a relatively small number of boutiques versus the amount of merchandise we have. And this is one of the great um, the great upsides that if you bring on one great boutique, so take the, our, our partners in the Middle East, I mean, they, they provide almost 20,000 products. So if you work with that one seller and you are articulating to them how you write the descriptions, how you write those titles, that human interaction enables you to get to a better result than what I think an, an AI solution would. But I think as time goes on and as our marketplace grows and grows, all of these things are on the table for how do we scale it even further. So now we're cer certainly open to looking at more of it and we're already well on the journey. Yeah, it's interesting. I know cop, uh, yeah, uh, highly experienced copywriters out there will uh, will probably curse at me for mentioning AI for, for, for content writing. <laughs> There's very mixed feelings about it. But yeah. the biggest challenge with scale when you're talking tens of thousands of SKUs is being able to manually write and optimize at that level, um, which is why it's interesting to see where, where the AI piece will go. But, um, I think the word, the word you used uh, there, which caught my ear, is, is optimizing. Um, and when we work with our partners, they don't need to write anything directly to Open for Vintage. We're and this back, comes back to that point about creating that seamless experience on the supply side. We take what they write from their platforms. So they're not sitting there updating the descriptions on Open for Vintage. And if that happens, then we know we failed. But I think what can happen is, is that joint effort of education to the boutiques in order for them to improve on their website and therefore creating a better experience for their customers. We take the view that if our boutiques are winning, we're winning. Um, and that's one of the big things for Open for Vintage is we endeavor to support the independent sellers who are selling with us. We're not trying to do them out of business. We're, we understand that in their markets that 
that that that's where they're seeking to win. We 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 aim to expand their markets internationally, get rid of these problems like customs that they just couldn't do themselves. And by working with them on things like the descriptions, that's that helps them sell better, helps us as well. But then, as you rightly said, the optimization part, we can do more on our platform. And I think that's where the role of AI is for us. Yeah, and that leads me on to a related question, which is, so you currently have over 60 sites, you're saying, local currency sites. Um, I was just looking at the Japanese version after you talked about um, yeah, the, the, the Japanese uh, example earlier. Um, it's not localised content at the moment. So it's, it's English content, but the pricing um, is obviously localised. Are there plans to, to open local language sites and truly customise to key markets? Yeah, I look at so when when you and I worked together at House of Fraser, it was the international e-commerce part that that was where where I was working on, and, and it, I'm forever thinking about how do we internationalize this, how do we break down the borders, how do we achieve this mission to accelerate this move to a sustainable fashion future, and the and the the way we do that is we're not just focused on single markets. We want this to be a global experience. A great great example yesterday, we had a fa- fantastic £5,000 sale from Singapore from of a watch from one of our Japanese sellers. So I love this. So we're, I mean, we're, we're a UK-based business, but here we have a transaction that's going completely cross-border under, in, in, in markets that we're, we're not physically in. And I love seeing that sort of growth because that, that shows us that the efforts that we've been putting in to break down these borders are working. The next stage in our localization journey is going like right now, yes, we have the, the local URLs, which I think is, is the first part of that. Um, we have the local currencies. We have the, the what you see is what you pay pricing, but then getting into more localized languages, content, I think for certain markets is going to have to be, and that is on our pipeline, is, is part of the next stage in our evolution. We'll then also in markets such as China, we will then, of course, be looking off our own e-commerce stack and looking at, at solutions like Tmall, for example. Um, and then also um, mobile app is, I think, another another big one on, on the pipeline. Um, authenticity is another big uh, topic, and I think there's some really exciting things going on in the world of blockchain that we'll be looking at as well. So there's quite a lot on our on our pipeline. But as uh, as I remind myself most days, don't boil the ocean. We'll we'll get we'll get there. But the lo- the local blockchain blockchain that small topic of uh, <laughs> we could use blockchain for yeah. Um, just quite, uh, one question coming back onto the the international shipping. You've you've done the the duties and taxes uh, inclusive, which, yes, I mean, from a customer experience point of view, it's fantastic because price transparency is critical and not then having to get a, as you said earlier, like a £500 surprise when you go oh. locally. The It's not easy to do. It's it's one of the most challenging things at the moment, especially when you've got uh, dynamics um, like you know, Brexit for UK sellers. It's added here. Things are always changing. Local taxation rules are in flux. What were the key things you've learned? I'd love to know what you've learned about how do you stay on top of this? Because that's the biggest challenge, I think. It's a very good question. Um, the, lear- the learnings have come thick and fast and have, have frequently been painful. Um, but I, 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 
my feeling is we 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 learn um, mostly from our customers um, and their experience, and we spend a lot of time analyzing reviews. We contact customers directly. We're forever trying to understand what what their needs are, what what is preventing them from engaging with pre-owned luxury. What why are they not shopping? What are, what's good for them? What's bad for them? We have 24/7 live chat on the website, which you don't see on, on a lot of our on, on a lot of our competitors. But what that enables us to do, and the team are forever analyzing the conversation, going, what, what was the problem here? What what have we found out? So back, I mean, customs was a massive learning. Um, but also one of the challenges, of course, for customs is uh when you get that text message going, <laughs> your your parcel is stuck and uh you, you now need to pay the bill and in order to get it released. We were seeing, of course, that that was extending fulfillment times as well. Now, because we're clearing the customs immediately and it goes through the delivery duty paid lane, um, our fulfillment times are much faster. So we're actually being able to, uh, to fulfill to customers a lot quicker than competitors. Um, we do a lot of work now as we're kind of moving uh, our focus onto the customer experience um, we're doing everything from analyzing kind of UX tools like Hotjar, et cetera. There's an awful lot of analysis on kind of where is abandonment happening. We're now getting into the kind of the nitty gritty of what the customer experience is on site. Um, and that, that I'm, I'm excited about that because I, I feel in many ways that we've gotten over a lot of those very, very big problems that th those learnings were rather painful and, and took a long time to, to solve a lot, of, a lot of gray hair versus when we started this. Um, and now we're getting into the real strides of testing and learning kind of what's working on the on the customer side. So it's an exciting time. Uh, how much of the, um, so that, that whole duty paid, um, element, how much of it is just simply data coming back from your carriers to give you the, the, the cost? And how much is it you having to, to take external data sources? Um, it, it was a consolidated effort. Um, Initially, you're you're taking kind of okay. Well, what what is the customs rates for pre-owned product into the country? But then what you realize is you're selling lots of different types of pre-owned products. So that adds a level of complexity. Then you're trying to figure out how, how big are these products. So that, of course, if you're doing if you're going cross border and you're on air freight, you're doing volumetric rather than just just dead weight. Um, so then that added complexity. And then in different markets, as well as that, then you've got a variety of different local ch charges like GST, et cetera. So you've got a variety of different um, charges. So you needed to figure out not only the, the shipping costs, the, the commodity codes, you then had the full landing costs. And, and yeah. I mentioned earlier, we, we exclusively work with DHL for inbound and outbound. That helped us because it enabled us to kind of collaborate with with the, with their teams very closely. But even this for them, and and this kind of gave us a, a little bit of reassurance. This was hard. This was not a straightforward uh, challenge that they had encountered before. And thankfully, they have some uh, rather new solutions around which enabled us to calculate landed costs at scale. So for us now, there's a level of optimization where we're constantly having to evaluate this and assess this. Brexit is a great example. I mean, the the week after Brexit 
took place. Like I'm sitting there with the team and we're realizing we now need to apply UK VAT onto product coming from Europe. And I'm looking at this going, we're about to hit our customers with like a very significant increase on pricing. I hated that. It was awful. But I'm, this is this is the reality of what we're dealing with. But what we were at, at least in our case, it goes on to the price and it still retains that what you see is what you pay pricing. You may not like the price and you may decide not to go forward with it, but that's your decision. We're not hiding anything from you. You're not going to get a nasty surprise later. And we look at some of our competitors who didn't have this in place, who suddenly in their checkouts were applying, like you go through the whole experience, let's say it's a thousand pound handbag, and then you get to the checkout and suddenly there's a line there of another 200 quid. I mean, as a customer, you're, you're not going to be thrilled about that either. So uh, we we hope that we've, given the customer the best possible experience, but I can assure you uh, that week with Brexit was we, we weren't very happy. Yeah, I think I think you, uh, that feeling it was shared by a lot of people and still is shared. There's still ongoing issues with of course. to get the processes right. Um we just just on that, I mean one just anecdotally, one of the things that it um what what we started to do on this was we started to focus more I mean the UK is a core market for us is to um, double our efforts to find great suppliers in the UK, which then enabled us to get around that challenge. So I think the next step for us is, back to your question around internationalization, is highlighting the best product in the in the markets where both the buyers and the sellers are. So then you're, again, you're removing some of those cross-border experiences. So that was one of the things that we We've, we've really spent over the last year is figuring out what's the best supply in each of the market and, and accelerating that in the markets that are important for us. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you've also, you, you've got Klarna on the site. Is that a relatively new thing? Because by now, Paylate has uh, just grown massively over the last um, uh, three or so years. What 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 brought Klarna to the site um, and what impact has it had in terms of like conversions? Yeah, again, back to the, your your earlier question there about where the, the learnings come from. It comes from our customers. When every other day customers are asking, have you got a buy now, pay later option? Like, yeah. kind of like, I think we need to add a buy now, pay later Somebody's option. Somebody's telling us something. What yeah, is so yeah, we should we should probably listen to this. Um, but um, I think Klarna is, is the beginning of it. And now you're starting, of course, you're starting to see Open Pay, which is doing really well. Andy Harding, who we worked with. Um, and and now you're also seeing, of course, what what PayPal are doing as well. So so I think th- this is absolutely here here to stay. We, we manage our most of our payment solutions using ADN. Um, and again, I talk about Open Vintage taking a lot of the pain up front. As a small startup, integrating ADN was not the obvious route. But what it has enabled us to do is to activate new payment types quite quite frequently and then to offer localized payment types quite quickly, which is great. So we've got Union Pay and, and Alipay in China, but we didn't need to do direct integrations, which, again, just from a go-to-market and a speed uh, point of view was, was really good. And we activated Klarna through ADN. And I, again, it, it avoided an integration with us. We were able to get it on relatively quickly. Um, and now we see it, it forms quite a part of, of what people are, are shopping with us. 
in terms of the payment type. So yeah, we 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 see it increasing. And interestingly, when Klarna turns on in new markets, of which they're rolling it out increasingly faster, we start to see Klarna then being used very quickly from those markets. So it's actually enabling us to, uh, to grow internationally as well. Uh, you know, I'm not expecting an exact percentage, but roughly what percentage would go through? 10%, 20%, 30% or more would you use Klarna versus standard payment methods? I think because of our, our order value, I don't think you're ever going to see it becoming the dominant one unless you, you see uh, the buy now, pay later guys are able to get over the regulators to get it over kind of very high yeah. Uh, numbers, but but yeah, you're safe to say it's over 10% anyway. Yeah. Okay, interesting. Um, here's, a, here's a bit of an open question. So you, you've, talk, you've touched on this over different areas of the business, whether that's from the, the logistics side to the um, scaling through the boutiques, but you've gone for a steep learning curve, right? It's fair to say every small, every, every small business that's a startup that then scales does. What have been the biggest surprises? Uh, you knew it'd be hard, right? But what are the biggest surprises and, and what have you what what could you like impart on other people, other small business owners who are looking to scale? So um, every every day is a surprise, um, but I think one of the ones which uh, I would call out and and that has given me increasing confidence and enthusiasm for what we do is just who is our customer. Um, and I think when we started this business out. And we were initially thinking about kind of uh, like perhaps a slightly older demographic, more um, perhaps a, a more affluent demographic, somebody who was a little bit further in their career. Um, that was kind of where our mindset started in terms of the look, the feel, the language we were using on the website, the kind of the channels that we were engaging with. Um, and what has really uh, surprised me positively is that our customer co- is actually a lot younger. And this is borne out, I think, in this coming back to when you were, we started this conversation about um, the growth trends that we see in this in, in this market. And what we see is that it's actually the Gen Z customer who's really leading the charge on engaging sustainably, engaging with brands that are sustainable, that are really looking to be um, more um, environmentally positive. Um, and what we see is more and more that our customers are younger. Our customers are probably are very experienced from shopping on, the, on platforms such as Depop um, and are now kind of as they become more and more comfortable in buying pre-owned and it's more native to them, that as they are starting to kind of begin and kind of progress in their career, they're like, God, I'd love a luxury bag. Where, where, where am I going to get that from? And can I do it in a way that, I can be a, 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 an environmentally positive customer. Okay, I'm going to look at buying pre-owned. And what we now see is that that's what's happening. Customers, younger customers are engaging with us. And that's really surprised us. And uh, I mean, I think for anybody looking at, um, at, at where the trends are going in, in, in the wider market, it's wonderful to see that it, it's the younger cohort that's really leading it, which would suggest that this is this is not a flash in the pan. This is here for the long term. So that's been a, a very positive surprise, and I think um, coming back to our mission uh, gives us a lot of confidence that that we'll be able to achieve it. So, question on that related to the Klarna one: Do you, do the younger audience use Klarna more? 
or is it is it is it more dependent upon certain price points where buy now pay later helps better? I think the buy now pay later is is predominantly used by a younger customer cohort, and I think it also facilitates them to access perhaps some some of the more aspirational products that may initially be like because of the ticket size uh, may be a little more challenging for them to get. But one of the great the great things with the products that we feature. These are products that last a lifetime. You're looking at stunning Chanel, Louis Vuitton, Hermes products. These are not throwaway products. So when we see customers utilizing solutions such as buy now, pay later to stretch to buying something like a Chanel handbag, we know they're not going to be going out and buying another one the week after. We know that this is something that they're going to cherish that forms a core part of We talk about capsule wardrobes quite a lot that the, that is the hero piece that is there. So we know that they're working hard to buy that piece, but that they're going to have it for a very long time. And that they know if they want to sell it on later, that there's a really good competitor or a compelling market for it as well. So it comes back to the fact that we're helping to extend the life, the life cycle of these beautiful pieces and creating a compelling experience for these young customers to do it. So Klarna and the likes, I think, plays a role in, in, in creating that. And do you, are you looking at or would you ever look at um, you know, true finance options, which are like longer term spend, like has Tachi Capital's been using things like luxury jewellery, where people have aspirational purchases or it's big gift purchases around weddings, but they want to spread out over 12 months rather than three installments. Is, is that on the pipeline or just hasn't been demanded by customers? No, I think we're, God, we're forever um, having customers are asking us additional questions about what alternatives are, are, are do you have? And, and it's interesting that we now see customers who would be familiar with using solutions like Klarna saying, oh, I, I'm trying to purchase a, a, let's say, a higher ticket item, but Klarna won't accept. What alternatives do you have? So to answer your question, yes, it's it's we're it's to be investigated. It is on the pipeline, and we're we're of course open to it. Excellent. I look forward to announcing on the site, and I'll get that long-awaited tag Hoyer that I've had my eye on <laughs> about six months. Let, let let me know. We'll give we'll give you the mates rates. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think even mates rates. It's uh, it's currently at my price bracket. Why don't you just buy your wife a Birkin? That'll uh, you'll get you'll, you'll you'll benefit from that longer term. Yeah. No, don't worry, that wasn't me shamelessly trying to get you to give me the uh, I think that would be an abuse, abusive position, wouldn't it? Um, and, and a final question. Um, where is Open for Vintage heading? I know you've recently been on Cedars fundraising. I know you've got you know, lots of uh, interesting growth plans. What, what's the key area you're going after? Um, look, I think where I talked earlier on about our, our three pillars that support our mission um, the focus is really now on pillar three, which is that community development is really engaging with um, with our audiences across borders uh, and is really shining a light on all of the hard work that we've done to consolidate all this fabulous merchandise. But it's not it's not just Open Vintage is not just a sales platform. I mean, we recently have introduced a repair solution partnering with the handbag clinic so where you've also got a great content hub where you can learn about like how to authenticate bags with the history of chanel etc so we're looking more and more at, at engaging uh people across a variety of different topics not just to to effectively to be a sales channel uh, but i think it really is that community and customer engagement part that we're really focused on 
by having customs out of the way, it enables us to do that more internationally. Um, so yeah, I mean, Cedars, which is um, which is ongoing at the moment, and we've had good success on, enables us, I suppose, to almost light, light the flare that we're now really building awareness of, of what we're doing, what our mission is. It engages people both in terms of their interests as investors, it highlights the brand, and I think for the next year or so is, is really where we will be really focusing our efforts and our energies is on engaging um, with, with, with customers. Um, and that's, a, yeah, it's an exciting moment for us. A lot of work has had to go into the platform and the supply in order to reach this point, which is, is, is tough because in some ways, if you're a, a traditional uh, e-commerce operator, you have your merchandise, you start selling it, you start scaling up the revenue. One of the big learnings for us was in going this hard old road is uh, there's a lot of work that needs to take place before um, before you're selling that first handbag. Somebody said it to me the 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 other uh, the other week that uh, to build a successful airplane or airline you need a successful airplane. Yeah, it kind of helps, doesn't it? Yeah, it kind of helps. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Excellent. Um, uh, uh, I've really enjoyed today. I mean, it's great catching up. I've, I've loved Absolutely. the story since um, since Open for Vintage launch. And no, thanks very much for taking the time to come to the podcast today. My pleasure. And I uh, look forward to catching up soon and uh, seeing you on the website buying that watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will be very soon. Um, I'm not showing the website to my wife just because I don't want to be. <laughs> but, look, I, all the best. I hope you guys continue to have uh, lots of success. I know yeah, you, you're working exceptionally hard. Um, anyone wants to check it out, go to the website uh, and go to openforvintage.com. And thanks as always for those who, who listened or are watching today. Do keep an eye out for the next episodes and let us know if there's any other topics you'd like us to cover. And if you haven't subscribed already, please do. The more, the merrier. Have a lovely day. Hi, sir. For more information on this topic, head over to replatform.fm for our audio podcasts. To discuss a project, or if you'd like to chat about any of the topics covered in this episode in more detail, please reach out to myself, James Gerd, or my co-host, Paul Rogers, via LinkedIn and Twitter. Thanks again for listening, and keep your ears peeled for the next episode.